Hello everyone and welcome to Locally Famous DBQ. Today's going to be a history lesson. I'm going to learn about Julian Dubuque. Where better to start this podcast about Dubuque with the man the city is named after? Of course, I found this information on encyclopediadubuque.org. Please type in that, that in your browser and check it out or... You can just click on the link in the description. Awesome resource. Learn a lot of things about Dubuque that you never knew before. But today is going to be a full episode about Julian Dubuque. Let's learn about this, dude. Julian Dubuque was the youngest of possibly 10 children. Born to Noel Augustinson and Marie Dubuque. He was well-educated in parish schools and was fluent in English and French. He also apparently was able to play the fiddle and had an interest in culture and arts. He worked as a clerk out of Michilimackinac, learning the Indian trade. Dubuque, for whom the city in Iowa is named our city, traveled toward the site of his future home all the way back in 1783. After hearing of the rich deposits of lead in the region, following the St. Lawrence River through the Great Lakes, he is believed to have journeyed through the Fox River Valley and down the Wisconsin River to join his brother Augustinson and Prairie Duchene. Traveling down the Mississippi, Dubuque settled among the Meskwakis, close to the village of Kettle Chief, just south of where the Julian Dubuque Monument now stands. On September 22, 1788, in Prairie de Dubuque made an agreement with the Meskwakis under the leadership of Akuakwa to work the lead mines on their land. After obtaining permission to mine, Dubuque brought 10 French Canadians from Prairie du Chien to assist him as boatmen, overseers, smelters, and woodchoppers. He often used members of the tribe to prospect for new mining sites and frequently sent Canadians to do the actual labor. So Julian Dubuque came down from Canada met his brother in Prairie du Chien and heard of rich lead deposits in Dubuque. Landed in Dubuque, right where the Julian Dubuque Monument now stands, and made an agreement with local Meskwakis to mine the lead in their area. Then he used Canadian people to mine and he got the Indians to uh, find new lead mines for us, for him. So the article goes on. He was not above using trickery to obtain his goals. The most popular tradition which has come down to us is that 
on one occasion when the Indians refused to accede to some demand. He threatened to set Catfish Creek on fire and leave their village high and dry. They still denied him, so one night his associates emptied a barrel of oil or turpentine on the water above the bend, and when it floated down to the village, Dubuque set fire to it. In a few moments, the entire creek was apparently in a blaze. The terrified Indians made haste to concede all Dubuque had asked, and supposedly by the exercise of his will, the fire went out. Wow, he really did that. Too bad they didn't just wait for the water to, you know, run out. That's pretty crazy, though. <laughs> hey, hey, Indians, I'm going to set this uh, creek on fire, and it's just going to burn forever unless you give me what I want. And then they conceded it, and then he probably just stopped dumping turpentine or oil in the creek, and it magically floated away. And there was no more fire. That's that's crazy. Feeling less than secure in the legality of the claim, Dubuque petitioned the Spanish Governor General Baron de Cardenaliente, <laughs> something like that, in 1796 for a clear title. His claim then stretched approximately 21 miles along the river and nine miles inland. The governor granted Dubuque claims to the mines of Spain with the understanding that no trade could be carried out with the Native Americans of the region without the permission of Andrew Todd, an Irish trader with influence among the Spanish officials. Dubuque was not to be bothered for long by this restriction. Todd died of yellow fever soon after the agreement was signed. So Dubuque was like, I, I want to make sure this land stays mine. So he goes to the Spanish governor. I'm not going to try to say his name again to get a title for the land. 21 miles along the river and nine miles inland. And they say, hey, Julian, you can have this land, but you can't trade with the Indians. Y you have to have the permission of this Andrew Todd dude. But Andrew Todd soon dies, and then Julian Dubuque was free to do whatever he wanted. The article goes on. Dubuque's claim may have been helped by the role he played in the rescue of Basil Giard, another of Iowa's earliest settlers, in 1795, although all the lands west of the Mississippi River belonged to the Spain, French trappers continued to enter the area. To counter this invasion, Spanish officials in New Orleans considered it a wise plan to have a Spanish trading post opposite Prairie de Chine. In May 1795, Giard, a trader, and Prairie de Chine paddled his canoe to New Orleans to confer with the Spanish governor. In exchange for establishing the post, Giard was given 5,700 acres around what became McGregor, Iowa. 
For this, Giard had to annually bring his furs to New Orleans. Hostile Native Americans soon recognized the value of the canoes, headed south, and attacked them. On one occasion, in 1795, Giard was rescued by Julian Dubuque. So Giard is this other dude, who I'll probably look up someday, early settler of, of, uh, of Iowa. Well, I guess maybe not, since he's just in Iowa, but he was working with the Spanish, helping them with the trading post. Um, and while he was delivering his furs to New Orleans, he was attacked by Indians who were trying to take the furs, I'm assuming. And uh, Julian Dubuque saved him. So the Spanish are like, hey, Julian Dubuque's all right. We'll definitely stay away from the land that we already gave him. At the Mines of Spain, the article goes on. At the Mines of Spain, Dubuque had cabins constructed for his French-Canadian helpers. A smelting furnace, trading post, sawmill, and blacksmith shop. Dubuque enjoyed considerable fame throughout the Mississippi Valley. James G. Solard, the son of a prominent citizen of St. Louis, has left perhaps the best description obtainable of Dubuque. Mr. Solar describes Dubuque as he appeared in middle life. And this is his description. As a man below the usual stature, of black hair and eyes, wiry and well-built, capable of great endurance and remarkably courteous and polite, with all the suavity and grace of the typical Frenchman, to the ladies, he was always the essence of politeness. So that was a, a prominent citizen of St. Louis, got to know Dubuque uh, through his considerable fame. And uh, that, was, that was the description of our founder right there. To the ladies, he was always the essence of politeness. It's awesome. The article goes on. Mr. Solard remembered that on the occasion of one of Dubuque's visits, a ball was given in his honor, attended by all the prominent people of the place. At one point of the festivities, Dubuque took a violin from one of the performers and executed a dance to the strains of his own music, which was considered a great accomplishment and was received with tremendous applause. <laughs> so this dude was a, was awesome, basically. He could fiddle it up. He was a good dancer. He was the life of the party. The article goes on. Dubuque enjoyed the acquaintance of many of the era's most influential people. Meriwether Lewis, in writing to William Clark prior to leaving on their exploration to the Pacific Ocean, asked Clark to pay his respects to Buke. As governor of the Louisiana Territory, Lewis included the name of Dubuque among those the American government could trust in the region. The federal government showed this trust in 1808 when Dubuque was appointed Indian agent of Prairie de Chine. 
ill health, however, forced him to give up this position after two months. People in the region knew him. People who were doing great things knew who Julian Dubuque was. The article goes on. Dubuque was a shrewd businessman. From business records, it is known that Dubuque annually sold hundreds of thousands of pounds of lead at five cents per pound. In addition to the estimated $20,000 in annual income from lead mining, Dubuque also had income from agriculture and the fur trade. In 1805, Dubuque was visited by the then-ill Zebulon Montgomery Pike. Told that there were no horses available to ride to the mines, Pike was forced to ask 10 questions about Dubuque's production of lead. He received the most elusive answers. Sounds like someone was trying to investigate the lead mines. And uh, Julian Dubuque realized that he was ill, not able to travel very well on foot. And um, told him there is no horses. You can't get down there. So why don't you ask your 10 questions and get out of here. The article goes on. Dubuque was deeply in financial debt to August Chateau. On October 20, 1804, Dubuque sold Chateau nearly one half of his land to settle his indebtedness. It has been estimated that Dubuque's entire land claim amounted to more than 73,000 acres. The settlement agreement provided that after Dubuque's death, the remainder of his interest in the lands would pass to Chateau or his heirs. Chateau sent his nephew Pierre Chateau, for, for whom the capital of South Dakota was later named, north to oversee the finances while Dubuque continued his mining, trading, and farming. Chateau was able to persuade his friend Governor William Henry Harrison to add a clause to a treaty negotiated with the Sauk and Fox of the Meskwakis. The treaty recognized that the west bank of the Mississippi belonged to these tribes. The clause stated, however, that the treaty did not affect Spanish land grants in the area. The question of the ownership of Dubuque's land was not settled until seven years after his death. In Chateau First Maloney, a landmark case argued before the United States Supreme Court by Platt Smith. This, however has not stopped distant relatives from filing claims over the years. In 1897, the Dubuque Herald reported on one such inquiry. The article goes on to discuss a lengthy court battle that maybe I might hold off for the next episode. I think that sounds good. I might do some research into the court case here. And save it for the next history episode of Locally Famous DBQ. But basically, I'm not sure how Dubuque got into so much debt. But he racked up a ton of debt with a guy named August Chateau. And um, 
sold him nearly one half of his land to settle his indebtedness. And the agreement provided that uh, basically Dubuque could go on however, however he wanted until he died. And at that point, the remainder of his interest in the lands would pass to Chateau or his heirs. And then after his death, it, it turned into a landmark United States Supreme Court case. That's definitely where I'm going to leave it for today. If you come across this episode and you know a lot about Julian Dubuque, and you would like to talk to Dubuque about, about Julian Dubuque, please hit me up, send me an email, send me a text, leave me a voicemail. I've got my email and my phone number in the podcast description. After you get done doing that, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your pets about this amazing podcast. Share, share it. Leave me a review wherever you found it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you hanging around and, and listening to locally famous DBQ today. We learned that Julian Dubuque is a shrewd businessman. He came down from Canada, met his brother in Prairie du Chien, and heard about the lead deposits in Dubuque. We learned that to get his way with the Indians, he set Catfish Creek on fire. And then with his will, with the exercise of his will, the fire went out once they seceded. We learned that Julian Dubuque was in a massive amount of debt. And um, that's where we're leaving it off. So I really look forward to the next time we meet on Locally Famous DBQ. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And I will talk to you later.